I'm Dilara Salahova, and this is the Sustain, Change and Grow podcast, your source of knowledge and inspiration for sustainable habits. Climate change is the biggest challenge the humanity is facing in centuries. It affects various aspects of our life. If we decide to act, to reduce our carbon footprint or to protect the environment, it threatens our lifestyle, our habits and traditions. We have to reconsider how we consume, what we eat, how we travel, how many children we want to have. These thoughts and changes may be uncomfortable and constraining. If furthermore, no climate disasters happen to us or our beloved ones, we may not feel the urgency to act. We may be tricked to think that things are not serious, that personally you can't really do much, that governments will do what is needed, or that we all will be well in the end. However, this is erroneous. If we do nothing to address climate change and biodiversity loss, changes can be more abrupt and disturbing. Climate disasters will threaten not only property and physical health, but also our mental health and lifestyle. And we will have to adapt to the imposed changes, but with less mental resources, unlike when we lead the changes and make conscious decisions. Psychology has made a significant progress in understanding human behavior and improving people's well-being. It can also provide better understanding of relationship between people and nature, how people can be encouraged to value and protect nature, what is the effect of climate change on human mental health and well-being, and why people resist changes and how change can be encouraged. In this episode, I have pleasure to discuss these various questions with Dr. Susan Clayton, a professor of psychology and the environmental studies at the College of Worcester. Susan is a conservation psychologist interested in understanding and promoting a healthy relationship between humans and nature. She also works on the implications of climate change for psychological well-being and was a lead author in the sixth assessment report of Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Professor Clayton has written multiple books and articles on topics of psychology and climate change, as well as conservation psychology. A warm welcome, Professor Clayton. This is such a great pleasure to have you in my podcast. Oh, thanks. I'm really happy to be having this conversation with you. And uh, I would like to start by asking you to explain how psychology defines human well-being and then discuss how climate change can affect it. Oh, that's a great question and, of course, a very complicated one. I think what I would like to say is that um, well-being is more than just an absence of illness. So what we want to strive for is more than just you know, an absence of physical illness or mental illness, but a state of positive functioning, which would include certainly um, positive moods. That doesn't mean we have to be happy all the time, but that we're happy some of the time, uh, that we can function, meaning we can we can sleep, we can uh, do our work, we can engage with friends. So we're able to kind of continue to engage in all those parts of life that um, that make it worth living. Right. And so how climate change can affect this uh, uh, feeling of well-being? There, I, I, this is a really important question, and I think that a lot of people don't recognize the extent to which climate change does threaten our well-being. 
Um, so I'll, I'll identify you know, several different ways in which it can happen. One, certainly, um, I think quite obvious to people who give it some thought is if you experience some of the negative weather events that are associated with climate change, um, such as wildfires or droughts or, or uh, big storms, of course, that can have negative impacts on your, on your psychological functioning, even if you're not um, directly affected or strongly affected, it can lead to anxiety and stress and worry. There are also um, lots of indirect effects of climate change that might affect our psychological well-being, such as the fact that some people's um, work, their the kind of the economic structure might be disrupted if you work in a in a field that is related to the natural environment, maybe agriculture or or fishing or even tourism. Um, or um, other other businesses that may experience negative economic impacts because of climate change, that's going to be threatening to your to your mental health. Food insecurity, which is a big um, a big worry about climate change for a lot of people, um, that can have negative impacts on mental health. And I, we are already seeing a lot of people displaced. Uh, by climate change, they have to leave their traditional homeland for reasons of maybe rising sea levels or, um, or just changing weather patterns, and and that can have negative impacts on your mental health. Um, two more channels. I'll just be very thorough. Two more mechanisms for climate change to have a negative impact. One is, and this may I think surprise some people, we have increasing evidence that just rising temperatures have a negative impact. And I think probably we can all recognize the way that very hot days might interfere with our emotional state. Uh, you know, we just tend to be uh, a little grumpier, a little bit more of a bad mood when the weather is uh, unusually hot. And again, there's a growing body of evidence that this actually, not only does it uh, impair people's mood and the ways they interact with each other, but actually is associated with uh, significant increases in mental health problems. And then the, the last thing that I'll, I'll mention, and then we can go into detail on any of these that you want, um, is just what's been described as climate anxiety. Um, the fact that our awareness of the climate is changing is a source of stress, even if we're not necessarily personally experiencing the direct impacts, we know that it's happening and we're worried about it. And um, for many people, that can be a source of negative emotions and, again, stress that might threaten their mental health. Yeah, indeed, there are very different reasons uh, how the climate change can affect uh, people's mental health. Uh, I, I would like to touch upon the, well, the temperature. So mm -hmm. I can uh, definitely relate to this. <laughs> when it's it's very hot, well, you, you don't have uh, strength or energy to do much. And then indeed you are very grumpy and uncomfortable and irritated. Um, but is it only the high temperature or it's just, um, we can define some sort of uh, the comfortable uh, temperature where is our comfort zone and we're used to and then anything outside of this comfort zone will uh, um, will irritate and uh, feel uh, un uncomfortable so either it's a high temperature or it's too low of temperatures that's a a really good question and um 
definitely people, you know, people prefer something in the in the middle and uh, being too cold is it can also be a source of stress. But the research suggests that it, it is disproportionately skewed towards impacts of higher temperatures that um, colder temperatures might be uncomfortable, but they don't have the same sort of impact on our mental state as the hotter temperatures do. And, you know, perhaps just uh, as long as the temperature is not too cold, we can usually cope with it by putting on extra layers or, um, you know, turning up the heat. Not everybody has access to air conditioning, whereas most people who live in cold climates do have access to heating. So uh, cold temperatures don't have that impact on our on our moods in the same way that hot temperatures do. As the temperature continues to go up, um, even if you have air conditioning, you might have to leave the air conditioning at some point. Lots of people don't have air conditioning. So we can't, it, it's hard to adjust. We can't sort of continue to take our clothes off. We can't, um, just fanning ourselves won't necessarily protect us. Uh, I see. What is the physiological or psychological reason that these hot temperatures have such an effect? This is still being examined, but there are probably multiple things. One is that um, and there's certainly a direct physiological effect uh, that humans can't cope. They literally can't cope with heat above a certain level. You can't adjust to it or adapt to it. It's just too much. So I think we recognize that as temperatures are getting closer to that level, there's a a stress associated with this um, this recognition that we're in a, uh, a physiological state we don't want to be in and we can't escape it. So that that um, that kind of demands our attention and uh, and serves as a source of stress. High temperatures, because they're so uncomfortable, we just start to think about how uncomfortable we are, which makes it difficult to focus on other things. Um, so uh, that kind of direct physical threat and discomfort is part of it. And also, um, one of the things that is almost certainly part of the problem is that uh, it interferes with sleep. And um, you know anybody who has been in a heat wave recently, which is probably a good proportion of your listeners, um, might recognize how difficult it can be to sleep. Uh, when the temperatures are high. And there's, again, really good data just relying on millions of data points showing that people's sleep is disrupted by high temperatures. And disrupted sleep can actually be quite a, uh, I mean, it makes us a grumpy and cranky, as we said. It can interfere with your ability to function in a variety of ways. So um, so that's part of the problem as well. Yes. Uh, and... Uh... Is there a relationship between this high temperature and the then uh, irritated state and then potentially actually more conflicts? Yes. And um, one interesting thing about the effects of temperature is that this is something that's been examined for decades, um, not just with regard to climate change. So you can, a lot of the research has, of course, um, compared people uh, who were in colder climates to those who are in warmer climates or people who are experiencing higher temperatures in a particular place as opposed to lower temperatures in that same place. But you can also experimentally manipulate heat 
you know, in a controlled setting. So you can put people in a room and raise the temperature or lower the temperature and see what kind of effects that has. And um, so we can feel much more confident that the heat actually does have that direct impact. And we know that, uh, as you say, aggression um, and interpersonal conflict and also intergroup conflict do occur more as the, um, as the temperature goes up. Mm -hmm. And now talking about the anxiety, so the, the last element that you mentioned, uh, do we have the evidence that people are really becoming uh, anxious about the climate change? And what are the sources behind this anxiety? Is it uncertainty? Is it the fear of, of, of the change? Is it the fear of the climate disaster is coming? Uh, could you elaborate a little bit more? Yes, absolutely. And I tend to use um, the term climate anxiety as, as a sort of a shorthand for maybe a constellation of negative emotions. So uh, it's not just anxiety. It can be anger for many people. Um, they're angry at those who have contributed to the to the degradation of the climate and to the um, existence and, and ongoing reluctance to address climate change. There can be grief associated with the loss of things that are important to us, um, which could be favorite places or just a sense of sadness at, at the loss of species or the fact that the climate itself is changing. So um, anxiety in particular tends to refer to a um, a worry and uncertainty. So the uncertainty is part of uh, what makes us anxious. We know that climate change is happening. We know that it's bad, but no one can say precisely exactly uh, what the effects will be, um, partly because so much depends on what we do now in terms of responding to climate change. So it's the uncertainty that definitely characterizes part of our response. One of the interesting things, though, and, and maybe ironic things about this sort of anxiety is it depends on your interpretation of, um, of, of events and, and information. So people who are not aware of climate change or maybe don't believe that climate change is happening are not going to feel that level of anxiety. So it's partly a response to information um, that is very abstract in addition to responding to things that you yourself have witnessed or experienced. So it's basically the more you know about increasing frequency of disasters, the more uh, you become anxious. So the, the least you know, the least you associate uh, what is happening with the climate change, the, the better you uh, live the, these changes. To some extent, yes. Now, of course, I don't think the solution is for us to all remain ignorant, um, but it does show that I think the ways in which the media, for example, report on climate change can make a difference. So by highlighting um, the negative effects of climate change, they might lead to an increase in anxiety, um, which again, is not necessarily a bad thing. Anxiety is a, an emotion that we have developed, I would say, for good reason. Anxiety is sort of a an emotional um, warning sign that says something is happening that we need to pay attention to, we need to respond to. So up to a certain point, anxiety can be a good maybe motivator for people to learn more about the problem um, and pay more attention to it. But uh, 
uh, as I think we can all recognize, at a certain point, the anxiety might become too strong and then people become sort of paralyzed. The uncertainty is too strong and they're not, uh, they're kind of continuing to worry and, and think about the problem as opposed to taking steps to respond to it. Exactly. I was thinking there are various ways how people respond to this anxiety. So one, uh, so I've met the group of people who are probably more sensitive from the start and therefore more anxious about what's happening. But those are the people who are the first to start acting. So they uh, they start uh, uh, new activities or maybe even new businesses to address the issue of the climate change. Then there are other people who actually may be uh, anxious, but rather stuck in, <laughs> in being anxious. And that's uh, rather, let's say, a negative reaction. And then there are people who uh, may be that anxious that, that they uh, they just start denying you know, that, that this is happening. So they, they try to protect themselves from this anxiety by denying that uh, anything is going to, to happen. Yes, that's exactly right. And that's why I think it's useful. It's very, it's useful and it's very important for us to be thinking about, we don't want to reduce or eliminate people's anxiety, but we want to um, discover the ways that will encourage people to have a positive, productive response to their anxiety as opposed to a negative, um, dysfunctional response to the anxiety. And what is this, um, the answer from the psychological studies? Is there a way to move this anxiety from the negative side to the positive side and to bring the, the action instead of uh, freezing? Um, I, I, I have to say that the research is still in its fairly early stages. I mean, really, people have only been talking about uh, this sort of anxiety for a few years. But there are some indications uh, and one is that um, taking action can be a very useful way, not just to address the climate crisis, but to cope with one's anxiety because um, the, the climate anxiety, it can really uh, be an experience of helplessness and, and um, uncertainty about how to respond. And um, uh, I, we, we have the phrase in English, deer in the headlights, the idea that you're kind of facing um, an ongoing problem and you're frozen because you don't know which way to respond, uh, which way to move. If you, um, so for people to actually take action can be a very, uh, it, can, it can shake them out of that response. Um, they're still worried, but they don't feel so, so much that they're a passive victim, but they're now an active agent in responding to the problem. And um, so that seems to be useful, especially when one joins with a group to take action of some sort, because, um, of course, working with a group can make you feel more powerful. Groups can accomplish more than an individual can most of the time, but also because there are positive emotions involved in those group uh, interactions, usually just the ability to share your emotions with some other people who experience them as well. And then... Um, these group actions, they're often, uh, they might be, you know, they might be fun. I mean, people who go to a 
a protest march um, often find it an enjoyable experience, or maybe people who are uh, joining together to do some of the more uh, unusual things we've seen, like glue themselves to the to the road or or throw soup at paintings. Um, you know, there might be a certain amount of, of, of silliness, a certain amount of fun in those actions. There are plenty of other things that people can do too. So I don't want to imply that those are the only ways to respond to your climate anxiety. But so those positive emotions can certainly um, be a, you know, a consequence of getting involved with others to take action and can help you deal with the anxiety. Yeah, this too, I really like both. So the, the first one, it's it's really about being empowered by acting. So uh, instead of feeling the victim and uh, helpless, uh, you, you, you start doing something and uh, that already empowers you, like you, you feel the agency. Uh, and the second one, I think it's uh, even like more important in our uh, current time that uh, it's the feeling of the connection and its mutual uh, uh, inspiration and support is really important, especially if this era of the social media and the people uh, staying with their phones and basically being uh, fully immersed in their own thinking, and which is very much biased, very much biased by negative thinking. So it's, um, well, it's 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 a great message that uh, actually in order to overcome this anxiety we need more connection and uh, uh, let's say even a feeling of being even more human because we ultimately social uh, social being yes very much so and one way i think about this is um even setting aside the issue of climate change i think a lot of people uh would describe society and in, in, at least in the developed countries right now is um, a lot of people feel disconnected. Um, they feel maybe a little bit alienated. We have less community than perhaps was true at points in the past. So a lot of people don't feel like they're a part of a whole. And working to address this particular problem gives people a way to, um, to create that community and to find a sense of a, a source of meaning and purpose in their lives. And um, some people have even, uh, some activists or, or people otherwise engaged in addressing climate change have, have talked about it as a privilege to have the opportunity to do something meaningful. So I think um, absolutely it's not just not just a way of overcoming anxiety, but a way of overcoming maybe a deeper problem with society of that feeling of, of, of disconnect. Yes, absolutely. And um, what are, uh, like actually moving a little bit more uh, uh, on the other topics, so what are the main conclusions of the, uh, the sixth assessment report of the IPCC, uh, specifically on the effect of the climate change and mental health that you contributed to? Is there anything else you would like to add uh, besides what we discussed? Well, I will say that um, in a very general way, the conclusions are that climate change has quite serious, significant um, implications for our health, both physical and mental, um, and that we can already see these effects. They're not things that lie in the future. Um, and one of the things that I'll emphasizes that physical health and mental health are really uh, intertwined. So we, t we tend to talk about them separately, but if you have 
a physical health problem, it may well affect your mental health. If you have a mental health problem, it may well affect your physical health. And there are some things that lie at you know, the border of both. For example, a sleep problem, I think you could characterize um, in both categories, or these sort of increases in interpersonal aggression and violence um, could be characterized as, as problems for both physical and mental health. So um, recognizing the scope and the certainty of the problem, I think, is the, uh, the most general um, finding of the report. But I would also, I, I want to add that we don't need to be hopeless, I think, is another message of the report. There was, um, you know, each, I think a lot of, uh, a lot of the, uh, what was discussed in the report is how to respond, what are effective ways to, um, to act or to change our current systems in a way to, that will uh, help us cope with or, or reduce the likelihood of some of these negative impacts. What were other suggestions, like the, the main ones? Well, I would say in terms of mental health, the main one is just we need to strengthen our mental health systems. And probably in every country around the world, mental health is a little bit um, under addressed. It's not taken as seriously as physical health. And of course, in many countries, even physical health uh, doesn't have the support it's, it, that it needs, but especially mental health. And um, certainly in the U.S. right now, uh, as the country I'm most familiar with, um, there have been rising rates of, of mental illness and distress and not enough uh, therapists to cope with that. So I think for, for societies to strengthen their support for maintaining mental health um, is one of the most important things we can do as we look towards a future where there are kind of going to be more mental health challenges. But then another very specific thing, um, and, and this is maybe a, a positive side of uh, the relationship between humans and nature over the past uh, decade or two, just as there's been increasing evidence that um, climate change has a negative impact on mental health. Um, there's also been increasing evidence about the positive effects of healthy nature. So uh, societies that kind of recognize that and go out of their way or, or make an effort to provide more opportunities for people to interact with healthy nature, um, that will enhance uh, mental health as well. And that's, you know, sometimes that's easy to do. Sometimes it's hard to do, but they're very, they're fairly simple things that, uh, you know, can be a start just planting more trees and, and making more public parks available, for example. Mm -hmm. Yes, we will get back to this, uh, to these questions on the nature. Uh, but let me uh, pick up. So you mentioned the US. So this is the country which has uh, the largest uh, uh, carbon emissions uh, per person in the world. And still it is the country which has the least progress and the more uh, like the strongest resistance, I would say, to the climate change. So how do you explain this split in the society and the, how it can be addressed? Oh, so, <laughs> there's, there's a, there are many parts of a response to that question. I think the, uh, the thing that's perhaps most important and, and probably everybody can, can see this is that climate change has become very politicized. Um, it 
this is true in some other countries, but it's probably particularly true in the U.S. So um, as opposed to um, sort of just perceiving reality and responding to the reality you see, people in the U.S. feel that whether they acknowledge climate change or not uh, reflects on their political identity. And then political identity in general has become, I would say, ridiculously important in this country. I mean, uh, you know, I, I will go out on a limb and say that uh, we're um, experiencing a, a period of particular challenge and dysfunction associated with the politicization of, of all kinds of things in the country. It's certainly not just climate change. So at some level, it's a reaction to this. It, it's part of the, the greater problem with politicization that um, makes it hard for people to agree on the right response. And um, we have, again, I don't think the U.S. is the only country in which this is happening by any means, but it, it does seem to be one of the worst. Uh, people feel free to reject scientific evidence and uh, substitute their own opinion on a variety of things, including climate change. Is there a way how we can move from uh, like political views to more... Uh, substantial or existential views uh, on the climate change because on the one hand i understand why it's uh, like that it can be political because it uh, it's a, well it's an existential threat but at the same time it's also a threat to the in a way uh, economic uh, values or economic standards right because we have to reconsider the way we live and the uh, uh, in, in, with some responses, some people will be more vulnerable or uh, more suffering in, than others. And uh, of course, uh, certain categories of group, they don't want to lose their, um, th their properties or their money. I I'm thinking in particular, uh, people uh, getting uh, money from uh, uh, oil, uh, oil industry, right? So, and uh, we can see how this can be easily politicized. But is there a way we can move it to like understanding that uh, uh, it's much more than just uh, politics? Well, I think so. Um, and certainly people are trying. Uh, and uh, I'll just uh, echo what you said, which is that there is a certain consistency or a certain logic to the idea that um, taking action on climate change is associated with a more you know, political left and not taking action is associated with the political right because um, the political right tends to be less supportive of government uh, interventions and they are less likely to want to acknowledge inequality and the ways in which people are disproportionately um, vulnerable to climate change. But, um, but nevertheless, there are arguments to be made on the right for addressing climate change too. And I think for example, the fact that a lot of um, companies are beginning to recognize that, uh, you know, if they want to make money, if they want to survive into, you know, the next 10 or 20 or 30 years, um, they have to address climate change. So I think one of the one of the things that will help us move beyond this politicization is just the it's just reality. It's increasingly hard to deny climate change. And so you do find more and more 
um, uh, acceptance that it's occurring and, and it needs to be responded to even on the right. Um, and then the second thing we can do is find uh, arguments that might be more impactful for, um, again, for people who are uh, or on the right, or at least arguments that are impactful for people across the political spectrum. And one of those is sort of recognizing the impacts on human health. Um, so mm -hmm. stressing, um, I think, for example, 10 years ago, a lot of the discussion about climate change might have emphasized saving polar pairs and melting glaciers. And this was not a compelling argument for a lot of people who weren't particularly motivated by the idea of saving polar bears. But as it becomes clear that it's about saving ourselves, um, that's a, an argument that is impactful for more different people. The last thing I want to just throw in is, of course, there have been systematic attempts to... Uh, encourage confusion about the causes of climate change. Um, so we don't want to think, oh, people are just bad at understanding this problem or they don't want to think about it. We know that um, fossil fuel companies in particular deliberately tried to sow confusion about the sources of climate change and um, you know promote misinformation about best ways to respond. And so um, you know, that's one of the reasons we find ourselves in this, in this, uh, position. Mm -hmm. So it was a deliberate distortion of the, uh, scientific evidence. Exactly. And, and mm -hmm. a, a society in which you have a very large amount of economic inequality and a lot of power, um, kind of given to, to large companies such as fossil fuel companies, um, is a society in which that kind of uh, that kind of effect is more likely to happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, basically, what uh, I heard from you is that uh, we need to find a sort of a common ground for people with different political views uh, uh, to the the common ground which uh, uh, is uh, valuable and important for for for, for a large group of people. So like uh, like health. Or uh, like uh, okay, maybe nature. We will get to to it. Maybe it's not. Uh, yes, you said uh, the polar bears are not uh, that important to everybody, but health is something that uh, everybody can relate to. Uh, but then there is a question. So there is one thing of knowing, and there are the uh, there are the thing of acting, and so uh, actually climate change is something that especially in Europe, there are many, many people who know the, the climate change is happening. However, there is still a lack of the uh, action. And so uh, one reason probably it's because uh, really the, the how we can address climate change is that we have to revise, uh, uh, reconsider how we uh, consume, how much meat uh, we eat. Uh, it's also part of our culture and traditions. Uh, and so people are resistant to changes. So what does psychologist says about how the changes can be encouraged and facilitated? Well, that's a, a really good question. And it's actually one reason why so many psychologists have gotten involved in, in relevant research. It's um, 
seen as a wonderful opportunity to provide some useful knowledge that might make a difference because psychologists at some level uh, have been focusing on behavior change for almost as long as psychology has been in existence. And of course, um, lots of people will go see psychologists to help for help with changing their individual behavior if they want to quit smoking or if they want to um, you know, learn better conflict skills or get over their fear of flying. So, um, so there are a lot of things psychology knows that can be useful. That doesn't mean that they are, are magic uh, and will necessarily create change right away, but they can certainly be helpful. And so some of those would be, um, for example, recognizing moments when change is possible. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons people don't change their behavior is that it's, it's, uh, a lot of our behavior is just habitual. Um, as you suggested, some of it is something we've, we've learned as part of our culture and it doesn't even occur to people to change that behavior. Um, maybe eating meat would be a good example or eating a lot of meat, uh, that, we know that eating less red meat in particular is a very effective way of responding to climate change. But I think a lot of people don't recognize that, or if they do recognize it, they don't act on it because eating meat seems to them to be so much, just, just so normal and so much a part of their culture, maybe even important to their sense of who they are, um, that they resent the idea of having to change. So, Finding times when people might be more willing to make a change might be, um, you know, if, if <laughs> this is, I'm not sure I can think of a good example here. If there were suddenly a, um, a, a meat shortage or a meat sort of crisis, like when we first discovered um, uh, mad cow disease, uh, bovine, um, oh, I can't remember exactly the name of the disease, but um, that led people to start rethinking their, you know, their food consumption. And so when you're rethinking it, that's a good time, um, to perhaps with help from outside to be responsive to messages about, uh, ways of changing your eating to be healthier for yourself and then healthier for the planet as well. So, um, perhaps a better example, a lot of people talked about the pandemic as an opportunity to reset some of our behaviors, especially the extent to which we were all flying all over the world all, all the time. Um, and because we couldn't do it for a little while, it made it, uh, it made us think about, well, do we really need to be doing this? Are there ways in which we could be doing less of it? So at that point, recognizing the, the implications for the climate might encourage us to change our behavior. In Paris, um, uh, in ahead. Paris, uh, many people uh, moved to use bicycles uh, during the pandemic, and I think it uh, it still remained the case. So it, uh, that uh, could be a very good example for uh, for your suggestion. Exactly, and I know um, a lot of professional society, or well, probably all professional societies that might have had in person meetings, didn't have in person meetings, um, and even though. You know, most of them have probably gone back to having more in-person meetings. They are at least uh, aware of the possibility that some of those meetings can be replaced by virtual meetings or that at least um, they should offer hybrid options. So I haven't seen any statistics, but I would I, I, I think it's very likely that the 
the number of people who are traveling for business or professional reasons has gone down. Right. Um, what are the most efficient motivators for people to, to, to change or to act? So I have thought about several, like maybe it's guilt. So mm -hmm. maybe uh, uh, painting a better future, uh, social pressure, economic factors. So like if we want people to encourage to, to take this, uh, to make these changes, to take actions, uh, does psychology help with the, what is more efficient way of doing it? Yes, I would say it does. Now, there's not a single answer that will apply in every single set of circumstances, but in general, one of the most, one of the very most powerful influences are these social norms. And so um, social support for behaving in a more sustainable way um, and perhaps uh, reduced social support for behaving in the unsustainable way. And... Um, in a way, you think, well, that just means in order to change behavior, you have to change behavior. So that's not very helpful. But what we can do is highlight the influence of the people who are doing the right thing. Um, so um, there's always going to be some people who are behaving more sustainably. We can make their behavior more visible and we can um, emphasize that their behavior is valued so that um, we can kind of show social approval for behaving in those ways. And those kinds of things really can have a big impact on people's behavior. Um, partly, of course, because it signals, hey, if I do this thing that other people like, you know, I'll get a positive social response too. But also it just shows what's possible. Um, if my neighbor is doing this thing, uh, then I guess I can do it. If my neighbor has put up solar panels, on her roof, or if my neighbor has managed to reduce his uh, energy consumption by 30%, um, if it was possible for them, there's no reason why it can't be possible for me as well. So those social norms provide both a suggestion of what might be rewarding, you know, personally rewarding, but also what is personally possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's now move to the other field of your research, which is the conservation psychology. And can you, uh, you already mentioned the importance of the nature for the human well-being, but maybe you could uh, uh, explicit it a little bit further. So what is uh, the role of the nature for uh, human, uh, well, I guess, mental health, which is the most important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things, I'll just start by saying that the relationship and connection people have to the natural world can be very important to them and can be uh, a powerful source of um, kind of personal fulfillment and well-being. And um, even though it may not be something that people will necessarily talk about spontaneously, if you ask them, a lot of people will say that feeling connected to the natural world is important. It helps them feel a stronger sense of who they themselves are, a stronger sense of meaning. And we were talking about connection a few minutes ago. Um, people say, oh, yes, when I'm outdoors, I feel like I'm connected to everything. I feel like I'm part of everything. And there are some um, very straightforward reasons for this. Um, some of them can be that uh, people tend to feel physically healthier if they spend time outdoors, so they're more likely to get um, 
you know, physical activity, which is going to be good for physical and mental health. Um, if you're outside in green spaces, the air quality might actually be better because those, uh, that foliage is, is filtering the air and filtering out some pollutants. Um, the kind of landscape we see out in nature also has been shown to reduce stress. Um, people feel calmer um, in green settings and also, I should say, in blue settings. So water seems to be very good for people as well. And some of it has to do with literally um, the kind of level of stimulation. So most people enjoy, for example, standing on a beach and watching the, the waves roll in or perhaps staring at a, a fire in a fireplace. That's sort of, it, it's not just still, it's, it's constantly moving, but it's, it's peaceful. It's not overwhelming the way looking at it as a busy city street might be overwhelming. So... Um, just that level of stimulation. Similarly, it's not just visible, it's not just visual. You're also getting these uh, nice auditory information from the waves crashing or from birds singing. Um, you're getting the sensory information from a breeze, perhaps. You're getting uh, some nice smells, um, you know, in, in many natural areas. So that kind of multi-sensory level of, of information means that we're not bored and we're not overwhelmed and it seems to be a very good experience uh, for us most of the time. So you, you did mention that uh, people feel some sort of connection to the nature when they're in the nature and the people are a part of the nature but my impression is that the people somehow lost uh, this connection so they uh, like at least consciously, they uh, they don't really consider them part of the nature. So and uh, maybe even uh, uh, some sort of arrogant they uh, above the nature and uh, um, they can maybe people in the cities even can imagine that they can live without the uh, all the uh, services that ecosystems and the nature provide. Uh, first, uh, would you agree uh, that this is? Uh, um, this is there. And second, if this is the case, when this connection was lost? Yes, I think um, there's there's been a lot written about this. And when you start going into the sort of uh, cultural history, it's a, it's a very big, um, big picture people have, have speculated about. But I agree that we... Um, we often get a message that people and nature are separate but that there is variability here across different cultures. Not, not every culture um, emphasizes that to the same extent. And certainly indigenous cultures often um, emphasize very strong relations between humans and the natural world. And they might um, kind of recognize elements of nature as, as kin, as sort of related. Um, so spirit animals or, to um, or totems or even, um, uh, for example, glaciers, um, perhaps by indigenous communities in Peru, for example, are endowed with a certain kind of personhood. Um, people feel a relationship to that glacier, or maybe in other places it could be, you know, a lake. Um, so that there are differences in, in the ways in which cultures describe that relationship between humans and natures. Um, I, I think the most of the 
you know, more developed technological societies have stressed this difference between humans and nature to the extent that it, it's not just um, it's not just anti-environmentalists, but environmentalists perhaps inadvertently have emphasized humans are harming nature. You know, we need to protect nature, meaning we need to protect these sort of wild places and um, not acknowledging places in which humans and nature coexist, like nature can be part of a city as well. So uh, there's, there's a long history there. I think in many places, um, you know, humans felt that they had to conquer nature um, and, and uh, you know, beat back nature, you know, uh, clear the landscape, uh, cut down the, the forests or the jungles in order to survive, maybe damming the rivers. So that, that sense that humans advanced only by controlling nature is probably one of the reasons why we now feel this, this, uh, this separation between humans and the rest of the natural world. But I don't think it's inevitable by any means. And I think we can do a better job of um, encouraging people to recognize that we are, we are connected. Yes, we need to rebuild this connection. I, I would like you to talk about the, the, uh, the environmental identity and the environmental identity scale that you developed. And so where people stand on there and uh, how uh, this uh, recreation of environmental identity can help people um, to uh, actually can help to restore this connection between uh, people and nature. Uh, but first, I would like to ask you, so many people do enjoy nature, so they love nature. So what you described, enjoying the, uh, the beaches, the waves, uh, the forest. But also, I have a feeling that there are two different things. One feel, uh, is to enjoy it for, uh, for yourself, in a way, and the other one is to protect it. And there is a big step between the two. And so maybe when answering about the environmental identity, you can also uh, answer like how to bridge this gap and to move from enjoying to protecting. Sure, I'll, I'll try. If I forget part of that question, just remind me. Um, so to start with the idea of environmental identity, this is actually one of the very first things um, that I started to do research into uh, when I when I began to think about um, researching conservation psychology and uh, research related to the natural environment. And it came from listening to what people said, including some of my students or um, just essays I read, uh, personal essays, uh, in which people talked about how important to them their connection to the natural environment was. And I, um, you know, I've always been a nature lover, an environmentalist, but I hadn't really thought about the psychological relevance. And then I thought, well, why, why is it so important to people? What, what, how does this happen? What does it mean? And um, recognizing that did provide people with that sense of connection and, and a feeling of connection is, is really something everybody wants. They don't always get it in the same way, but we all essentially want to find ways to connect to, to others and to the larger world. So if you can feel connected to nature, um, that's a very uh, a powerful way of satisfying that need. And so that's one of the reasons why 
a strong environmental identity can be good for you because um, to the extent that you feel that connection to the natural world, you don't have to feel so isolated and, uh, and alone. Um, but it is true that feeling the connection and then recognizing the need to, to do something <laughs> to protect nature are two different things. And for many people, I think they just don't think of nature as something that, that needs their help. Um, and I've encountered a lot, um, I've encountered this a lot with people who are uh, uh, kind of uh, traditionally religious. Um, they consider the natural environment to be something that is kind of God's providence, and therefore humans can't can't hurt it, but also humans aren't really responsible for helping it. Now, there are many people who are religious who think, no, we are we are required to be stewards and caretakers of the natural world. So it's by no means um, inevitable, but there certainly are people who feel that, you know, nature is, is, is not something I can affect. That's uh, God's in charge of that. And I think other people um, who have a similar feeling maybe about the government, uh, you know, nature may be important, but it's not individual action that matters, it's governmental action. So they don't feel that sense of personal responsibility or even um, maybe not even permission to get involved in looking after the natural environment. So I think what's really important, because when we start to talk about identity, identities are typically most strongly formed as among young people. It's, it's harder to change your identity as an adult, although it's, it's not impossible. We need to find ways to give people messages as children that they are connected to the natural world and um, and that part of that means, you know, caring for the natural world, um, just as you would care for your own family or for your own body, even um, for your own health. That caring with nature is is part of what it means to be connected to the natural world. Mm -hmm. Uh, is it natural or innate in people to care about nature? Well, it's hard to prove. Um, you may have uh, run into this idea that um, sociobiologist E.O. Wilson proposed of biophilia, which he essentially argued that we are genetically inclined to form a, an emotional relationship with the natural world. And I won't go into, there, there's, there's good reasons for this, and there's some evidence that supports it, but it's hard to, you know, to prove that that's a definitive fact. It's certainly the case that um, most people like nature. There are very few people who don't like nature. Um, uh, most people, even people who maybe live very uh, unsustainable lifestyles, nevertheless like nature. And, and this is one of the reasons why learning to care for it needs to be an important part of the message. When you think of very well-off people, um, what do they want to do on vacation? Very often they want to go to remote tropical islands and um, stay on beaches, or they want to go you know, to high mountains and go skiing. And part of what they want to pay for is that access to nature. Um, so yes, exactly. So even people whose uh, who's behavior is uh, disproportionately responsible for harming the natural environment uh, 
typically value it. Um, it's just that they are not letting that value guide their behavior. And where do the majority of people stand on this environmental identity scale? Uh, that's a good question. I have not um, ever done research where I've tried to get a representative sample of the population. So I can't say, you know, Americans average score, um, for example, but in all the research I've done and in all the research I've seen, and there's been a fair amount, um, you tend to get scores that are, you know, a little bit above average. So um, hardly ever does somebody say, no, I don't feel, you know, connected to nature at all. Um, most people do report feeling some sort of connection to nature. So I think in some ways, um, perhaps even more important than whether somebody has that sense of environmental identity is under what circumstances do they remember their <laughs> environmental identity or do they act upon their environmental identity? I see uh, as a solution, let's say, from our discussion. Uh, it's un Unfortunately, it sounds a little bit like more long-term because we have to uh, bring up uh, children with the high level of environmental identity and on top of that uh, with the uh, with this environmental identity ranking pretty high in in their values so that they act uh, in uh, naturally by protecting the nature uh, but what would be the recommendations the the actions uh, maybe then uh, let's say from the schools from the universities from the governments uh, uh, to bring this uh, let's say this generation up uh, let, let's start with this one, and then I will ask about maybe a shorter-term solution. <laughs> yes, and what's interesting is that I think most people um, do want children to feel a connection to nature. So you see, this is something that a lot of parents will try to do at some level, is, is expose their children to the natural world. This is one reason why zoos are so popular, um, or just public parks parents, I think, instinctively recognize the importance to their children of having those opportunities to, you know, to encounter nature and to run around in it. Um, so I think definitely, um, you know, parental involvement, but also providing people with the opportunities to take their children into nature. Um, definitely schools can emphasize it. And this is one way in which, uh, our education systems can be challenging because often there's a lot of paperwork or bureaucracy that makes it difficult for teachers to incorporate nature into a school day. Um, they have to stick to a particular uh, curriculum, but to the extent that they can, I think schools are a wonderful opportunity for all children to you know, to be exposed to nature and um, from the very earliest days of, of daycare and preschool where they might have a, a pet um, hamster in the classroom or they might plant a, a lot of children in the U.S. end up planting marigold seeds um, and, you know, watching them grow. So learning about that, learning about nature and, and feeling that sense of, I think every child gets their own marigold seed so they can watch their own plant grow that that personal connection. And then as they continue to grow, um, incorporating time with nature into the curriculum um, 
so children not just learn facts about it, but also have those experiences and learn about their their own role in um, in protecting and caring for nature. I think the in some way the exposure is there because uh, as you said the most uh, most schools in most countries they do bring uh, children into the nature and parents bring to the parks and uh, during vacations to the mountains or the seas but i think there is like probably the key element is moving from uh, experiencing the the pleasure of the nature to really to knowing how to protect it and what is your role particularly in doing it uh, and the do, do would you agree that this is some way missing brick? brick? Um, I think to some extent, yes. I mean, there there are certainly programs that are trying to overcome that, but I think in general, there has not been enough emphasis on this. And it's something you don't want to expose, you know, a five year old to the sense that, uh, you know, to a really scary message about climate change. So the education, of course, has to be geared to the age of the child, but um, even a fairly young child can learn that the way in which they treat nature makes a difference. And again, this is what you can do with, um, you know, if you water your plant, it, it will live. And if you don't, it will die. Uh, or, you know, that it's important to feed the pet hamster and so on. Yeah. Um, or not littering and, in the forest or collecting the waste. Uh, mm -hmm. or, like there are so many ways people even don't think about it. Exactly. And I was, I was just the other day, um, I can't even remember where I was. I was some place in, in nature on a walk and I saw a man um, who was smoking a cigarette and he, you know, took out the cigarette button and threw it on the ground and left it there. And I just thought, here you are, you, you came to this place because you wanted to go for a walk and yet you're leaving your cigarette butts there. So somehow he missed that, that message about, you know, he was simultaneously valuing nature and, um, and not recognizing the role he was having in protecting it or failing to do so. Yeah, exactly. And um, you have studied a lot of the zoos. Uh, maybe very briefly, if, if you can mention uh, uh, what is the impact of the zoos uh, on the um, and the people's uh, connection to the nature. Um, and if you have, uh, because I know also many people, they uh, reject uh, uh, not going to the zoos because they uh, feel that's a bad uh, treatment for the animals, especially for the wild animals. If you also have a view on the, let's say, pros and cons uh, of what is better, Yes, these are a very contested topic, as as you uh, as you point out. Um, they, I uh, yeah, people are are um, are not happy about the idea of confining animals for human entertainment or for human use at some level. And certainly, there have been in the past, and and still are in some places today, zoos that treat the animals badly. So I, I can't, um, I don't want to dismiss those concerns. However, um, good zoos and zoos that are accredited, I think, try to be places where people not only learn about nature, but learn to respect and value nature. And the people who I have worked with in zoos are very committed to 
to nature. So this this for me is part of part of the evidence that zoos do serve a positive function is that people who work there tend to be people who care about nature. And when people go to the zoo, um, they are going there to appreciate nature and in, in many cases um, learn about the needs of nature. So I think zoos at least have the potential to have that positive educational impact. And um, so there are better and worse ways of being a zoo. I, I that you know, it's not like it's all or nothing. I think zoos can do a better job of, and are trying to do a better job of uh, kind of respecting and valuing individual animals. But I think their role in exposing people, not only to the nature, but to the needs of nature um, is, is very important and, and has a positive impact. Mm-hmm. And I would like you to mention, so like in the short term, if there is something we can do to encourage people's protecting the nature at the individual or company levels. And in this respect, uh, I, I just would like to mention uh, the example that you give uh, in uh, one of your books about adopting a mile. Uh, so if you can say about this uh, practice, but also mention some others, like in the short term with the adults, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what we can do. I think one of the most important things we need to do is to tell people, essentially to give them the opportunity. I think a lot of people um, would do more if they felt, if they knew what to do and if they felt that it would make a difference. So pointing out to people all the time, you could do this and it would have a positive impact. I think that would, um, people would appreciate the opportunity in many cases, especially because there are so many things we can do without you know, significant sacrifice. Um, I'll, I'll say as an aside, we need to acknowledge that people have lots of things going on in their lives and they might not protect, they might not prioritize protecting nature over feeding their family, for example, but that there are things people can do without having to sacrifice their own comfort or well-being uh, that can protect nature. So more, more information about um when you're shopping, for example, um, which product choices will be better for the environment and which ones will be worse. Um, when you're buying energy, um, being given information about ways to reduce your energy use and um, you know choices you can make maybe about the types of appliances you buy or the types of light bulbs or the source of your energy um, and what impact it might have on the planet. Um, so that kind of information. And then getting back to what we were talking about earlier, just more information about what other people are doing um, and sort of maybe uh, celebrating, hey, look at this very innovative thing your neighbor did and now your neighbor is saving energy or um, look how many people in your hometown um, have decided to you know, reduce their, uh, their uh, meat consumption, and here are some recipes that uh, you know your neighbors put together that uh, of ways you can enjoy your food without eating so much meat, things like that. So sharing that social information. Okay, and do you feel sometimes hopeless when uh, thinking about climate change and uh, all the problems with the environment that we have? I do. <laughs> I do, um, especially when 
you know, we are in a dangerous time and we, you know, we learn new information about sometimes the dangers are, are greater than we thought. But I essentially work to retain hope. Um, It's not something that just happens. It's something that I actively seek to, to uh, cultivate in myself as hope. And there are lots of things that give me hope. There are new, um, technological developments that might help us. And there are lots and lots of people um, who are working to protect the planet. And I think that the, the awareness of the value of nature um, and the ways in which it's threatened are increasing all the time. So I think that there are, there are sources of hope and we have to, we have to just uh, encourage ourselves to to find those sources and to contribute to them. Are there surprising or inspiring things that you learned about people that also give you hope? Well, I think one of the things that I constantly learn about people, and it's it's not really a new lesson, but it still can be surprising every time, is um, just some of the positive motives are there, that are there and, and people's love for nature. One of the reasons I like working in zoos is because you'll see people from all walks of, of life um, just being overwhelmed by admiration for the animals and expressing these very positive emotions, for example, or somebody that you wouldn't expect, you know, somebody, a, a businessman or, a, you know, uh, somebody who's, you would expect to be primarily focused on making money, um, talking about how much they valued getting out into a national park for their most recent vacation. So the, the kind of fact that that love for nature is so fundamental to so many people is definitely, um, for me, a source of hope. And the last question, uh, what are the two most inspiring books for you? that you could recommend to the listeners? Oh, gosh. Well, I, um, you know, it, <laughs> it kind of depends on where you are and where you're starting from. Um, so what you already know, what you need to learn. I think um, for me, reading uh, there... There's, I, I mentioned biophilia earlier, and there's a book called The Biophilia Hypothesis that was published maybe as long ago as the 70s or certainly the 80s um, that I really enjoyed because I, I learned so much about the way in which people relate to the natural world and um, just uh, it, it made me think about that relationship in, in an entirely new way. Um, and similarly, Stephen Keller had had a book called The Value of Life, just um, describing some of the ways in which, uh, in which people care about nature and the, the, the different ways in which they care about it and the different ways in which that's manifest. So those are both older books, but, um, but ones that I think uh, really helped me to change the ways in which I thought about the relationships between humans and the natural world. Um, I, there's so many others I could I could come up with if I uh, kind of looked at my shelves, but those are good ones. Okay, thank you. Um, 
Okay, that's it. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to say? No, I think that you have been very comprehensive. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for your time and this extremely interesting discussion. Thanks for your questions. They, they were really provocative. Professor Clayton has provided rich material about the effect of climate change on mental health and people's attitude to nature protection. According to the sixth assessment report of Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, more and more people are suffering from climate anxiety. I retain from the conversation with Professor Clayton that this it is in everyone's power to reduce climate anxiety by two simple actions. First, acting is empowering. It helps people activate their inner forces to achieve their objectives, and it gives them energy and hope while making necessary steps on the way to their goals. Second, more than ever in the era of digital technologies and social networks, we need to stick to each other, to join communities of like-minded people. It is very important for our mental health, for our happiness, and for the impact we can create together. And to encourage change to live more sustainably, as a society, we need to value and showcase positive behavior that we want to encourage. Social norms is one of the efficient ways to encourage the required attitude. Thank you all for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode and stay tuned for new episodes. Bye bye.